My name is Jamie Keach, and you're listening to the Resource Insider Podcast, where we talk to CEOs, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in the mining and metals industry. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. Of course, I'm Jamie Keach, and today I'm very excited to get this podcast out there because it's different than anything we've done before. It was our first live podcast, and by live, I mean we actually did it in front of a live audience. So we probably had 70 or 80 people sitting down in front and listening to our conversation. Now, we did this about two months ago now at the Beaver Creek Precious Metal Summit. You've probably heard me talk about this thing on video, on other podcasts, and in our articles, and that's because I had such a great time. Anyone who is serious about mining investing, I highly recommend you check it out. Precious Metal Summit, they have them in Beaver Creek, they have them in Zurich as well in Switzerland. So very cool event run run by a great team, and they were kind enough to offer me the chance to do a live podcast there. And Jessica and I, the organizer, we went through different guests that would be a good fit, and in the end, we decided to invite a gentleman who's a bit of a Denver mining legend, and his name is Doug Silver. I first heard about Doug through a friend of mine. Uh, She's a very successful geologist and investor, and she had previously worked with Doug at his company that he works for today, which is called Orion, which is a very large, very successful private equity firm focused on the mining industry. They've got offices in New York, in London, and Doug basically oversees the Denver, Colorado operation. Now, what interested me about Doug particularly was that he had a really varied, really interesting career. He's a geologist by training. He has worked in the field. He's worked um, as a consultant. He started a royalty company, which was called IRC, International Royalty Company. Great name, simple name, which he basically started in his basement and then sold several years later for over $700 million. So Doug has had some excellent experience He's extremely financially savvy, but also, I would say, first and foremost, a scientist. And having that combination is a really, really rare thing to see. So Doug and I sat down in front of an audience. If you want to actually see this, we're going to have the video of our conversation on our website, resource-insider.com. Scroll down to the bottom, you can see podcasts there, you can follow through, or you'll be able to find it on our YouTube channel, which is just uh, Resource Insider on YouTube. Doug is a very interesting guy. We really got into the weeds about how to make good investments, uh, the role of royalties in the sector, and his career in general. I highly recommend this podcast, particularly for people who are technical by nature and thinking about making the jump to the financial or corporate side of the business or for investors at home that really want to get a better understanding about how the big boys make their investment decisions. Orion is one of the most successful private equity firms in the mining sector, hands down. Uh, Doug is a big part of that team and it's great to hear from someone who's had such a wide variety of successes throughout his career. So without further ado, let me please introduce Doug Silver from Orion Resource Partners. Welcome, everybody. So I'm very pleased to greet you this afternoon. I'm Jessica Leventhal, for those of you who haven't met me. And it's um, I launched the Precious Metal Summit in 2011, so it's our ninth annual, and we're very delighted to welcome you all here for a very busy four days. Kicking off our presentations agenda is a very interesting talk this afternoon. I'm pleased to introduce to you Jamie Keach over on your right. Jamie is a mining engineer with degrees from the University of Toronto and the Camborne School of Mines. 
Uh, he's also worked in the industry for Equinox Gold and some, done some mining consulting. And Jamie decided in 2018 to launch a podcast called the Resource Insider Podcast. I think he has over 20,000 listeners now, and he features very interesting, in-depth conversations with people who have been investing in mining. And uh, I commend you to his very interesting podcast. I am subscribing and listening, and it's really informative, and you'll hear some great in-depth interviews. So today, from Beaver Creek, we are very pleased to have him here to interview Doug Silver, who's been an industry veteran for 40 years and is a portfolio manager now at Orion Resource Capital. But he has a very interesting background, and you'll hear all about it now. So I'll turn it over to you, Jamie. Thank you. Great. So, Doug, Yes. Thanks for coming today. You're welcome. And thank you to the audience. You guys are all guinea pigs at the moment because this is the first live version of the Resource Insider podcast. And I can normally delete the parts where I sound stupid, so we're not going to be able to do it this time. So. No, no retakes? <laughs> no retakes on this one. Yeah. Um, so today you are portfolio manager at Orion, but you have worn a lot of hats throughout your career. And a big focus of our conversation is I want to talk about what you've done throughout the mining industry, how you've seen the industry evolve over the past several decades, and particularly how you've seen financing within this space change. Um, Would you be able to start by sort of giving us the 30,000-foot view of who you are and your background in the space and what you do today? All right. Yes. Well, thank you, everybody, for uh, not being out on the patio drinking sangrias at such an early hour. Um, as a way of background, I have a, I have a genetic affliction, which is I'm infinitely curious about everything. And as a young child, I was always involved in things in nature, and I always knew I'd end up doing something in nature. Uh, but uh, my first degree at university was in zoology, and then I also completed a degree in geology. And it wasn't until I was a junior in college that I ever looked at a rock. I didn't collect them as kids or anything. So whereas a lot of the mining people I know kind of grew up collecting rocks or prospecting with their dads or cousins or what have you, I I really didn't do that because I was raised in New Jersey, which the only thing we have is asphalt and exits, you know. So uh, after university, I went to the the, uh, University of Arizona for my master's work in economic geology. And uh, from that, I got in there. To go back to why I decided geology, I really wanted to be a botanist, but Anything I grow dies. I, I can't grow anything. I, to this day, I can't grow anything. But maybe some of you are familiar with the Barringer Meteor Crater in Arizona. Well, my family owns that. And I thought it'd be really interesting to find out why my family owned a hole in the ground. And, and it turned out at the University of Vermont, where I was doing my undergraduate, that one of the professors there was actually a professor of meteoritics. And so I went to him and I said, hey, how do I take your meteoritic course? He said, well, it's a graduate-level course, so you have to do the undergraduate. And that's, that's why I took on the geology degree, just so I could take his course. So had you spent much time at the crater as a kid growing up? Or was no. it once you were at the university, sort of piqued your interest? Yeah, no, I, I think I went there once when I was very, very young. And it's really ironic that the craters in Arizona, and I went to the University of Arizona, just totally coincidental, had nothing to do with it. Okay. But since I was in Tucson, I think I've been in the bottom of that crater two or three times since then. So once you started taking geology, you know, you already had a zoology degree. What made you actually direct your career into geology? Was it the economic prospects of that, or did you just sort of find your passion with rocks? Well, you know, in high school and even in college in those days, um, you know, nobody talked about careers. It was just about taking cool classes and things that interest you. So I just took geology to find out about this hole in the ground, and I really liked it a lot, and I finished the major. And then you have to make a decision about going to graduate school, and pretty much everybody had to have a master's degree or better, so I had to go to graduate school. And then the second question is, do you go into oil and gas, or do you go into hard rock? And I just thought hard rock was a lot more interesting. Mm. Today, I would do the opposite, because more money in oil and gas than in oil. So. But I went into hard rock, and then the question is, you know, which are the best universities to go to? Yeah. And uh, Colorado School of Mines, obviously, was, was listed. You know, that's the community college in Golden. And then the fine University of Arizona, home of the Wildcats, and then UBC was the other. Those were the three. And my professor, being a meteoritic expert and not an economic geologist expert, mm-hmm. told me I should go to University of Arizona because all the iron deposits down there. 
So I spent six months waiting to go to an iron deposit when they're, in fact, copper deposits. So <laughs> I got to Arizona by accident. I mean, I'm glad the guy knew at least it was a mining school. So you graduated from there with a graduate degree? I got a master's from the University of Arizona. And, and during my, uh, uh, I successfully completed two years master's program in three years. Very proud of that. And um, I got a job working for Anaconda Copper as a summer intern. And then that led to formal employment. And then I was involved in the discovery of the, of the Silver Creek molybdenum deposit down by Telluride. Mm -hmm. And from that, I, Anaconda had just formed an acquisition team, which was the first fully, dated, fully dedicated acquisition team in the mining industry. Before that, acquisitions tend to be done by the engineering department. And they created one, and I got promoted as the junior member of a four-man team. And ARCO let us chase the world buying whatever we wanted. What we didn't know is that ARCO had also decided to get out of the minerals business, and they wouldn't let us buy anything. But it was a marvelous PhD, and that's where I learned about valuations. Because I was a scientist. I just wanted to be a good geologist. I, I knew nothing about accounting or finance or business or anything like that. But doing acquisitions, I was the youngest guy. I got to do all the grunt work, and I got on-the-job training. So that got me into valuations. I know a lot of geologists in my generation that have probably spent 10 years in the field or at various mines and are trying to take the step into the business side of things or corp dev or acquisitions. You, what advice would you have for people that want to move into the finance side of the industry out of a purely technical role? And I mean, I did that with engineering and I, I found that challenging as well, but yeah. engineering typically it's easier given the maths background, but what, do you have advice for geologists or younger people kind of? Yeah, I think, I think first of all, it's very, very difficult because the number of people in geology versus the number of people in financing, it's such a small, small percentage of the population. I mean, look at the world right now. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about PE firms, but there's maybe 40 firms in the world that are in, invested in, in mining, you know, fully dedicated to mining. And if you look at them, they don't have staffs of 100. They tend to be very small staffs. So every job is very precious. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and how you get into the queue is the way you get a job in anything. In business, you need to network, 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 build your credentials while you're networking, and then, then hope the opportunity arises. Is there a way to build your credentials uh, from a financial uh, literacy perspective, maybe a CFA or something like that? Or is it, do you kind of have to get lucky? Like, I speak from my perspective. I got lucky and worked for an accountant who taught me. Um, you were lucky working. For <laughs> it's probably not something that's uttered that's very often. Here. Okay, so, so the, the thing about it is that it depends on where you go in the financing. I mean, in the good old days, you know, an MBA was what you wanted. Yep. And we didn't really have <laughs> PE firms back then, but you could go work for an investment bank. But if you look at how the investment banking and the analyst community and the classic merchant banks, all of them have reduced their staffs to a point where some of them got out of the business. So it's extremely hard now to get in the financing. But I would say if you're going to do it with an academic route, you need to, to get an MBA. You need to be able to have that. And you should specialize in finance rather than accounting. Um, you should do that to, 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 to better position yourself. And then the next thing is uh, you need to network. I, I work with a lot of students. And uh, students do not know how to network. Professors don't know how to teach networking. Uh, I'm always amazed that at any conference I go to, take PDAC, which we all attend, you run into students, you'll have a great discussion with one, and you'll say, do you have a business card? And the answer is, why would I have a business card? So I can remember you when I'm looking for somebody. And simple things like that make a huge difference when you're networking. Mm. Give them a business card. It gives you the right to call them two weeks later and say, remember we met, I gave you a card, I have a question for you. Are you hiring or do you know anybody who's hiring? But, but networking, is, it's, it's a bit of an art. But it's absolutely key. It's like they say, it's, it's who you know, not what you know. It's actually both. But who you know is really important when you're looking for jobs. So in preparation for this interview, everyone brought up people I asked questions about, your database, uh, that you had this amazing database that had more information than anyone else in the industry. I don't know much about it yet. Could you... Give us a run view of what you actually put together there. So, so the, the, the short story on it is that in Anaconda, um, I rose to be the assistant to the vice president of exploration. So my job was to do budgeting. My job was to prepare all papers that would go to the board. 
and then being in my position, I would follow the VP into the board meetings and sit there quietly while the, the brain trust of the company were making decisions. And what I learned is that they were making decisions based on what they read in the Wall Street Journal that morning. Mm-hmm. Nobody was doing fundamental research to make proper decisions based on facts. So we all lost our jobs. They laid off 700 of us in Denver on one day. I mean, it was because of how the board and, and senior management were making decisions. So when I got out, I kept thinking about this because I didn't think it was that hard to collect data. And remember, this is the early days of computers. We were doing a lot of stuff with a number two pencil and, and a piece of paper. So I took my severance package and I bought a computer. And I thought, you know what? I live on a finite planet. I'm going to make a database of all the mineral deposits in the world and various statistics that we would use in the acquisition team for buying it. And that turned into this company called Balfour Holdings. And uh, what I really enjoyed doing was pricing deals. So anytime a press release came out, I had a massive database, about 70 categories. And I would take everything from that deal and put it in there. And I could price what you paid on a per pound or per, per ounce basis with very, very high precision. And that created a consulting practice because nobody else was doing it. So there was nothing like this in the investment banks or the funds or the, the, the mining companies at the time? Um, in your, in your... They, not, not to the, I, I tracked everything. Yeah. The, the big investment banks tracked the big deals. I tracked big deals, little deals. I didn't care. Uh, and the other thing too is the investment bankers, the nature of their work, they don't have time to build databases yeah. to this level. Because I was a consultant, I had a lot of time to build databases. So this is pre-internet. Yeah, well, it's just a, yeah, it was it was pre-internet, just barely, and then when the internet. Okay, so PDAC back the internet. <laughs> I would I would take a army duffel bag, you know, the big green canvas ones, and I would fill it up. The first two days of the show, I'd do nothing but walk around every booth, pick up all their packets, take it back to my room 10, 15 times during the show, and then at night I'd get rid of the covers and things I don't know, and I would bring home. 60, 70 pounds of paper, and then they would go into filing cabinets. And when we finally dismantled Balfour, I had 78 filing cabinets of data, and I've been told by others I had the largest mining annual report collection in the world, second only to the Canadian government. But then when people came to me and said, hey, what about, what do you, can you tell me about so-and-so? Well, my records only go back to the 1960s. Do you need it before that? No, we were hoping you'd go back like three years. So the access to data, we could, do, we could study anything very quickly because we had everything organized file. And then when computers came on, everything went into Excel. And that's why I developed an appraisal practice, again, on my valuation love, my love of doing valuations. I went back and got my degree in appraisals. And then I would do appraisals for the big mining companies. But I was using this data. So you've put together this sort of tremendous amount of data. Yeah. Now, one of the things you're best known for is IRC, yeah. uh, International Royalty Corporation, which you founded in 2003. Yeah. Going through this data every day, gathering it, did you, was that what led you to redirect your career into the royalty space? Did you see a trend there that other people were missing? No, no, it, it was quite different. Um, and remember, everything you do in life is self-serving. So I'll give you a great example. <clears throat> I was turning 50. My kids were getting ready to go to college. Consulting's a great lifestyle, but it's not a good way to pay for college or make money. And uh, at that time, I got a a job which was appraising a royalty company. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely loved the business model. I liked the fact that I could do all the work. I didn't need a large staff. I didn't have to manage people. You could really run it on a shoestring. And because it was so scalable, the economics were phenomenal. So... After I closed that deal, a friend of mine, Doug Hurst, who many of you know, Doug and I and, and George Young, we decided to put together a royalty company. And uh, this is actually a true story. We went and saw 14 investment bankers to get them to back us. And they all said no. And the last one we went to was Haywood. And we knew damn well they were going to say no. And so we had I had actually had to leave the meeting early because I had a <coughs> consulting job. I was trying to pick up to pay my way home. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, all of our credit cards were maxed out and everything. And uh, Haywood said, we'll take the whole deal. And, and how much were you raising at that time? We raised $3.8 million. Yeah. And But the thing about it was that the reason they liked us is because they said, okay, you want to be in the royalty business. You know, Frank goes in the royalty business. Royal, why do you guys think you can do it? And it's because we had a database of all the royalties in the world. And I had gone to my clients which were major mining companies, saying, I want to buy your royalty portfolio. And they said, Doug, you're a consultant. You don't have any money. I said, that's okay. I'll do an IPO. Okay, fine. Call us when you have the money. 
and I got 60 royalties just based on my relationships, and then we paid them on the IPO. And in a lot of cases, the major mining companies didn't even know they had a royalty. And so we were actually helping their land department do their job by showing them royalties they didn't even know they owned. Was this the case with the Voices Bay royalty at all? Or? No, the, the Voices Bay royalty was a bit different. Um, Haywood actually told me about it because Altius had just bought 10% of the royalty. And uh, it was a royalty that I really liked, big, world-class mine. You know, it had all the sort of things investors would really like. And uh, so we contacted the owners of the royalty and said, we'd like to buy your royalty. And they said, well, what would you pay for it? I said, I have no idea. I don't even know you. They go, why do you need to know me? I said, because I don't know who I'm negotiating with. So I asked them, and I said, what, what do you guys do for sport? And they said, we fly fish. <laughs> so That was the right answer for yeah, you. Yeah, this right answer. So Doug and I went up and spent three days fly fishing with them, and then we discussed the deal. And it took about a year to get done, but then we, we ended up successfully getting it, and we took the company public with an IPO to pay for it. Was it competitive to go after that? Were you competing against the Royal Golds? or We were competing against Altius. Altius um, yeah. A couple of the other big royalty companies had approached the owners, but... and. They had not approached the owners in a way the, the owners appreciated. And so they were shut out of the process. And we took a whole different approach because these were individual prospectors. So it wasn't like dealing with a corporation where you give them a term sheet and say, take it or leave it. You had to, you had to work very carefully with them. Whatever question they had, we'd do a white paper. We helped them understand how we were going to create value for everybody. Was this Chris Verbinski? Chris Verbinski. Yeah, I'm trying to remember my big score. Reading yeah, 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 yeah. So, okay. I'm glad you brought up Altius. So something I noticed going through IRC is it was a diversified royalty company. You had uh, across a range of commodities. Altius is the only one today that I can think of that really follows that model. Why do you think that is? And do you think that the royalty model makes sense for, for a diversified company? Or should they be focused on the gold, silver, or secondary elements? All right. So first of all, why did we buy non-precious metal royalties? Because we could. Mm -hmm. It was that simple. All the big royalty companies were chasing precious metals. I don't know about you, but I don't like competition. So going to a field nobody else is going, it helps. The other point, which we turned out we were absolutely wrong on, is that a dollar of cash flow is a dollar of cash flow. Apparently, that's not true in the public markets. A dollar of gold cash flow is better than a dollar of nickel cash flow. They get a premium. Yeah, which, right? yeah. which is absolutely an asinine idea, but it's been around for a long time. So we built the company figuring we were going to build cash flow. And what we found out the hard way was, no, if it wasn't precious metal cash flow, you wouldn't get the big multiple. You still got a multiple, but it wasn't as big. But once we had Voises Bay locked in, we were pretty much committed as to what our model was. So we would just keep scarfing up royalties anywhere we could as long as we could get some cash flow out of them. When, when I look at the royalty space today, I see it as being extremely crowded and competitive. Did you find that at the time or or do you think you got in at the right time where it was really ideal to build that style of company? I, I would totally disagree with your characterization. Okay. I think the royalty and streaming space is wide open. could take another half dozen players easily. Um, I think the monopolistic look to it right now is, is, is a facade uh, because not everybody has access to the same information, the same network, the same contacts. And there's no like public market where they list what's for sale. Yeah. It's all about networking, relationships, and stuff like that. So we often bought royalties that we knew we didn't even have a bidder competitor on. I had one. I bought a portfolio from maybe some of you remember John Livermore, who was involved with the discovery of Carlin. Great man. And I went and saw John. I knew him. I went and saw him, and I gave him a presentation. And he goes, he goes yeah, it sounds good enough. So he wasn't even going to run a process. And were they like prospectors, or are they like? Well, he was a prospector, yeah. but he was a very special, very, very talented man. God knows how many deposits he discovered. But John at the time was in his 80s. And I said, well, you know, we're going to put these into a company. We're going to take it public. Stop, stop, stop. He says, I don't want any shares. You've got to pay me in cash. He says, I don't even buy green bananas. <laughs> so we paid him in cash. So do you think that's common, though, that an individual or a company that holds a royalty would sort of take, would deal with one group individually? Because royalties are so popular now. I would know that there's so many companies out there that are looking for royalties. I would want to shop it around. Do you think there's a, a subclass, I suppose, that just hasn't been approached and isn't maybe as savvy in the it, opportunity there? It really depends on the size of the, of the royalty or the royalty portfolio. 
any major mining company selling a royalty portfolio is going to use an investment banker who's going to run a process and shotgun mm -hmm. it to everybody and anybody who'll take their phone call. But when you get down to uh, individuals, families, estates, uh, stuff like that, yeah. they don't know the public markets. A lot of them are private, and they don't want to do anything with the public markets. They just want to get the price that they have in mind. And if you can get them close enough to it, they'll, they'll do the deal. So if you were to start a royalty company today with $10 million, how would you start? $10 million? Yeah. Be a long day. <laughs> Can't go very far with $10 million these days. No. The, 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 the problem that the royalty industry is facing is that we have a lot of small companies. And the small companies tend not to have a lot of cash flow. So they're not going to get the multiples that they think because they don't have critical mass. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you, if you look through my work history, I've now built and sold two major royalty companies. And, uh, and it's because we understood how to get to critical mass. We paid for it and we, and we got it done. The small companies will continue to buy and they will continue to grow, but they've got to get up to 50 or 100 million a year in revenues to be relevant to the institutional investors and get the multiple. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people, I assume, sitting in the audience today are going to be working for issuers and companies. Um, they might have the chance to sell a royalty on a project. Is there, is there a time you would advise a, call it a, either an exploration or a development stage company, to not sell a royalty? Or what's the ideal environment to bring in a royalty? It's, it's driven by the mathematics. If you have an expiration project that all your best guesses are going to be 15 years from production, you're not going to get very much for it. Mm -hmm. If you have a royalty where you're on the verge of getting your permits and being shovel ready, then it's very valuable because in, the market has changed a lot and the market now only wants cash flow or very, very near-term cash flow. Back in the day when we were building companies, back in IRC days, we were trying to accumulate massive portfolios of exploration development and production. It was quite a different game. Mm. And the other thing today is that the royalty business had a structural change around 2010, 2011, where most of the big royalties in the world are now owned by one of the royalty companies. And everybody now is shifting into streaming. Yes. Because it's, it's much better. It's a marvelous way for a company to raise hundreds of millions of dollars for project funding. And it's a great way for the big royalty companies to get a, a streaming asset that will give them 10, 20 million a year. So both parties win. Mm -hmm. The small royalties just don't grab anybody's attention because they don't build the critical mass. So if I was going to build a royalty company, it has to be near-term cash flow. I would recommend looking at streams rather than royalties. And... Um, and you've got to, if you want to get it, the attention of the investors, it, it, you can't be small. It just, the, the, you know, if you have to spend $5 million a year running your firm and you only have $2 million in revenues, it doesn't take an investor very long to look at the math on that. Yeah. So you've got to keep things in balance because investors are very earnings-oriented now. That was one of the best things that came out of the crash or the recession was this idea of just accumulating for the sake of accumulating, whether it's how many ounces of gold you produce a year or how many royalties you have in a portfolio, that's no longer of any interest to investors. They want to see cash flow, steady growth, projectable growth, dividends, stuff like that. So 2010 comes along. You sell to Royal Gold for almost $750 million Canadian. Yeah. What inspired you to do that? Great story. Um, we had a board meeting and in, in the November before, and we had basically found eight deals that we needed to land one of them to stay relevant. And we didn't get any of them for, for very, various reasons. Uh, some of them were pulled off the market. Some of them we, we couldn't play. And so we had this dilemma that we couldn't grow to meet our institutional needs. Same time, Obama was getting ready to change the U.S. tax code on estates, mm -hmm. where it would have gone from 40% to 55 or 60% in taxes. Mm -hmm. And um, so... I had my, I was hitting a wall where if I kept building value, it was all going to go to my government. And, and meanwhile, we couldn't get, we couldn't land a big deal. The big boys were, were out competing us or for one reason or another, we couldn't land the deal. And then I was at uh, the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame dinner in January. And uh, the following week, I got two phone calls. One was from David Harkwell from Franco. And the other was from Tony Jensen from Royal Gold, and they both asked me the same question. 
They said, Doug, we'd really like to buy your company, but we have two problems we need to get better information on. It was the same two problems for both of the companies. And they said, would you let us look at it? And I thought, you know what? That's a sign from Mana that it's time to sell. So then we ran a formal process. And we ran it internally for about seven months or so. And then we finally got to the point where the board said, Doug, you need an investment banker and mm. you know a lot of the liability issues and all that. So we got an investment banker who topped off the deal and we got it closed. And when Franco went public with their bid for us, it wasn't because it was a hostile takeover. It's because Royal had won the prior round and it was the only way Franco could still bid for us. Okay. So it was, it was a confluence of factors that all pointed saying, now's the time. In hindsight, we, we timed it perfectly. After that, you move into private equity. Yeah. What inspired that shift? Um, you, you know, you're probably looking for some philosophical thing. My CFO, who I love like a brother, he was not, he didn't get any founder shares in IRC because we hired him after we went public. Okay. And everybody who had founder shares did very well. And he wanted to keep working. And he said, we're a really good team. Let's go do private equity and keep working together. And I thought, you know, this guy, I have a lot of respect. We really were a good working team. So I said, all right, yeah, let's do that. And meanwhile, most of the private equity firms had approached me because of our, you know, we got a 70% premium on our stock. So we were in high demand to do this in the private equity world. So they were all calling me anyway. And uh, um, most of them I said no to, but when it was Red Kite back then, before we spun off from Red Kite, they made me an offer that only a fool would have turned down. So that's how I got into private equity. It's that simple. So to ask a general question, what do you think the role of private equity is in the mining sector? Uh, and the why I ask that is because well, the way I think of traditional private equity is sort of the traditional buyout firms that are buying the entirety of a company, yeah. either cleaning it up or stripping it down or some way rejigging it and spinning it out. What I've seen in mining is they're buying portions of companies, 30, 50 percent, uh, keeping them on the public markets. How do you think private equity navigates that and how is the role in mining or why is the role in mining somewhat different than what you see in general industries? Well, like all businesses, we evolve. And the mining industry evolved dramatically after the, the Grand Recession or the Great Recession. Um, because of higher banking margins, a lot of the traditional mining finance banks pulled out of the business completely or reduced their risk exposure and, and reduced the amount of capital they're willing to put into mining companies. The equity markets died, and PE mining PE firms started to rise and the reason that we were successful in rising was because we were filling the finance gap that nobody else was providing. Now, that was you know, 2009, 2010. We're roughly 10 years into it. The model has evolved a lot more. The equity markets continue to not support public mining companies uh, for a lot of reasons, which is a talk in itself. But meanwhile, private equity has stepped up time and time again to be the provider of funds. So there are a lot of different agendas for the different firms. I mean, some firms do a lot of equity. We don't happen to do a lot of equity. We do a lot of debt. Some do debt, a lot don't do debt. So there's a whole, there's a whole variety of PE firms out there to help. But the bottom line is what we are doing is we're providing financing that the traditional banks and the equity markets are not providing. Now, when you say about, well, we're buying 30 50% of a firm, I would guarantee you if you surveyed all of the private equity firms, that's not what we wish. Mm. But when somebody's stock is way down and they come and they need $10, 15000000 million, and you do your darndest to design something, you end up with a lot of stock. So uh, unless you're, there's one or two firms out there that are loan-to-own shops, but most of the private equity firms I know uh, would prefer to have a much lower exposure in equity because once you bro- breach 20%, then you have all these restrictions and blackouts and regulatory requirements and you know, um, there's a whole lot of things that happen when you go over 20%. And are they going over 20% because often they're the only available source of capital at that yes. time? Yeah. And, and, you know, if you take, for instance, if you took a, we don't do expiration companies, but if you took an expiration company and they want to raise $5 million, you're not going to do it with debt. There's no way to repay the debt. So part of it is the deal structure, um, what the, the capital structure of the company can absorb. 
And obviously, if they're a producer, they can take on debt, so then they can take on less yeah. equity. But in general, because everybody's market caps have been so low for so long, you're going to get a huge slug of equity if you, if you do a deal. So when we were talking previous to coming up here, you'd mentioned that you saw some serious structural issues yeah. with mining finance in general. Yeah. Do you talk a little more on the, the challenges you see and the issues you're seeing there? Yeah, we've done, we've done a lot of research on that, um, both privately and, and within our corporation, trying to figure out what's going on. And, and if, for those of you who haven't seen Nolan Watson from Sandstorm, his presentation in London, I think it was two years ago, it should be required reading yeah, by everybody. Yeah, Minds and Money, I think. That was, was a marvelous speech. And his comment about how passive um, investment is impacting mining. We, we did the math on it. He's, he's spot on. Um, the problem with past investments like ETFs is they're not investing in private placements. So if you're out trying to raise $5 million, you know, there may be $100 billion in ETFs and the mining space, but none of them can buy in your private placement. So where are you going to get your money from? Um, most of the banks, the banks are doing very little in the way of debt. Uh, even though if you look at the supply demand picture for pretty much any commodity, we have a huge need for capital to come into this industry just to break even. And there's very few people providing it. Um, so what do you mean by that, just to break even? Well, if you look at supply-demand figures, we're not building a lot of new mines because nobody has the money. Mm-hmm. Yet the human population continues to grow, the consumption of metals continues to grow, and you have a supply-demand imbalance that is coming, and it's going to be ugly when it hits hard. And if you look at the capital needed just to keep that supply-demand balance in equilibrium, it's going out the window, folks, because we're not building mines fast enough. We're not building capacity fast enough. So, so again, the problem is how are we going to provide society with the metals they need if we can't raise the money to explore, develop, and construct these mines? So how do you see that financing gap eventually being filled? Do you see traditional forms of financing coming back into the space, uh, maybe mining-focused funds that yeah. are participating in private placements or brokers that have uh, you know, a big client base that are able to fill these orders, or is it, is it something different? It, it's probably something different because I've never seen this before. And uh, the human's ability to forecast the future is pretty, pretty poor, at least my record is. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think what's going to happen is what we all wish would happen. When a Volkswagen costs you $200,000 because the price of metals skyrocket, when the metals start taking off in price, the surge will bring investors back. But the question is, I mean, we've been in this dead zone for 10 years now. How much, how much longer can yeah. we all hang in there? But eventually, the supply dynamics are going to get so out of whack that metal price is going to have to rise, and that will draw attention back. And then the problem is, will the mining investment banks still be around then? Brokers are all leaving, too, because we do everything digitally. What is the investment mechanism world going to look like when that turn occurs? Do the big generalist funds start deploying capital into the commodity space and it gets picked up by smaller funds that deploy? What? I mean, Possibly. I'm speculating. Yeah, yeah I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a thousand different scenarios. But the scenario I see is that right now the investing public is not supporting this industry. And on the other hand, this industry has not given them a strong return, which may be cause and effect. But, you know, expiration is only slightly picking up. We don't have a lot of new discoveries, but we're still burning through mineral deposits. I mean, the world consumes the equivalent of one giant porphyry copper deposit a year. But we're not discovering one porphyry copper deposit a year. So it's a massive imbalance. So I'm going to ask you a very challenging question. What advice would you have for companies and issuers out here today that are, you know, they have a good project. Maybe it's at the exploration stage or even the development stage. They're trying to attract capital. What should they be doing differently to get on people's radars that they didn't have to do 10 years ago? Well, they, they, the, the one thing that disappoints me the most about most small companies is that because their funding is so tight, they're doing really shoddy science. And when the professional financiers come in and look at the quality of work they're doing, it's a big reason why we say no. They're cutting corners. They're, we had one case where somebody said we're, we're, uh, we have a feasibility study and, it, and it, you know, the capital costs were plus or minus 100%. That's not a feasibility study, folks. That's not even a preliminary economic assessment. But they got the independent engineering company to call it a feasibility. People are cutting corners because they're trying to save money and they can't raise money. I get it. 
But the problem is when you come to professional investors, we pick this stuff up on the first read, and the answer is you're done. We're not interested in you. So just because times are tough doesn't mean you should lower the professional standards. That's, that's a very big key. Do you think over the coming years we're going to have a supply crunch of competent professionals that are going to be able to do work to that degree? We already have a supply crunch. Um, in the United States, we used to have 24, I think it was 24 universities that taught mining geology, our world. Right now, we're down to like 11. And uh, every one of these universities is struggling. And the mining companies, because they're struggling, they're not giving enough money. Some of the mining companies are doing a superb job. But most mining companies, and I sat on boards at University of Arizona for years. You go to them saying, you know what, you need to support education. This is your future workforce. And they're like, no, no, we don't have any discretionary spending. So they're shooting themselves in the foot. And years ago, the CEO of Newmont, probably 10 years ago, he said, we can only build one mine a year because we don't have enough skill. So again, this goes to the issue of, folks, you think metal prices are going to rise in the future? Well, if you don't have the skill set to build mines, you don't have the money to build mines, we've got a real supply problem, but we don't have a demand problem. So we have a mutual friend who credits you as being a big uh, helping and driving force in her career and getting her set up uh, and playing a big role as a mentor. What do you think the responsibility of people in your position uh, who've had successful careers in this space and probably a lot of people in this room right now to start providing those opportunities for the 30, 20-year-olds that yeah. will need to do that role in 10 years from now? Yeah, men mentoring is incredibly rewarding, just personally. But, you know, I've had the luxury of 40 years of experience, and, and like the rest of you, most of it's been bad. Um, you know, you, you never learn when you're successful. You only learn when you do things wrong. So I'm extremely well-educated. But we need to help the next generation to do better than us. Now, they're already running circles around us with technology. And uh, I'm really glad to have my own millennial who tells me how to use my cell phone and my computer. Um, but we need to impart the professional traditions, the professional practices. And the best way to do that is have somebody working with you day in and day out because you, can't, you can set up a bit of a curriculum, but you really need, they need to go through it with you and you can teach them the tricks mm. of the trade. And I think all of us that, that, that want to give back, it's absolutely a marvelous way to do it. And hopefully that'll make them better than you were at that age. And then in fact, their job is to improve you know, the society and the industry beyond you. So we're coming up on our time and I want to turn this over to the audience in a couple minutes to ask some questions. But you know, one question I like to ask in most of my podcasts is, is there anything that you believe about the space today that other people think is crazy, that your peers uh, or your colleagues think is an, a crazy idea, but you're convinced of? Uh, that's a loaded question. Um, I, I, I think this, and I, I'm still working through it, but I think that the investors in public companies need to do better. I don't know how you get them to do it because their choice whether they want to spend or not, but there are some fantastic projects out there run by very competent teams that deserve to be financed. And yet the investors tend to lump, a, lump everybody into, well, you know, nobody likes copper, nobody likes zinc. But there's no way to hold the investors accountable the same way investors hold the mining companies accountable. And I know it's a crazy idea, but um, the other thing I would do is I'd get rid of ETFs. I think ETFs, yeah, they were a good idea in the beginning, but now they are hurting our ability to advance the industry and provide the metals that everybody wants. And I think something, and there's other professionals that are now starting to talk about, all right, ETFs are going a little too far. We need to cut them back. I think it's like 5,000 of them. There's so many in the world. But um, those are two things that I think a lot about. My last question is, and this is kind of a strange one, but is there anything else in your life, hobbies, uh, side professions, whatever, that, <laughs> that's not the end, that uh, has added to your ability to succeed in this career, that you've taken skill sets from, that you really think has benefited your ability as a mining professional? Yes, I like fishing. I, um, my hobby is doing scientific research, and I do it in fishery science because I enjoy fishing, but more importantly, I enjoy aqueous ecosystems. And... It's amazing working with the fisheries industry because 
we get to go out and hit a rock, look at it, measure it, assay it. We see exactly. We're doing direct science. They don't. Everything they do is indirect science. And it's fascinating working with people who work with indirect statistics and have all these techniques that we don't have because they don't have the privilege of actually seeing what they're measuring. And uh, it's been an absolute blast on an intellectual basis. It's wonderful working with graduate students. And uh, it's made me much more a much better critical thinker because I'm learning new scientific approaches that I, I didn't know existed. You get to dust off your zoology degree a little bit? Yeah, yeah. I, I always wanted to be an ichthyologist, but, you know, I didn't want to work on a salmon boat. So, um, you know, it's a way that I get to get back into what was always a, a love of mine, which was studying fish. And uh, so I get to, like, I'm lucky enough that I can afford to do that. Great. Well, thank you. So we have a few minutes left. Um, does anybody have any questions? There's a couple there. These are the plants you brought in? <laughs> I'm not going to ask a fishing question, but where do you think the new investors, what countries or what regions do you see, Doug, as you're looking around that's going to come in and actually help to give blood to the, to the sector? Where do you think the money is going to come from? Yeah, that's a, that's a, really, that's a really tough question. I mean, I think um, if I had to sort of rank places in the world, I think the, probably the best place for money is coming from Asia. Um, Latin America, as you know, are, are not big public equity players. Um, I still think there's a lot of money in North America, just being, not being harnessed correctly. Uh, Europe traditionally has been good. Former Soviet Union, I wouldn't put a lot of faith in. Forget Africa. So I would think that the money would, and when we talk about Asia, I'm talking about beyond just China. I think Asia would probably be my number one ground to go looking for equity. Do you think that's the role of companies to do that, or is it more the role of, say, North American or European-based funds to start sourcing uh, capital from that part of the world? I think it's the, it's the jurisdiction of people who have the relationships in Asia sure. to develop those markets and then connect the two markets. Fair enough. So, you know, if there's an investment bank that has a lot of experience in Asia, go to them because they'll have the Rolodex. Yeah. But for... You know, a small exploration company to go on a roadshow by themselves in Asia, I'm not sure they would be very successful. Mm, yeah. Okay, thank you. Yes, as a, an economist, I'm a professional ignoramus, and I wondered if you would help illuminate the, all the advantages of a streaming uh, deal versus a, a standard royalty deal. Yeah, that's, that, that's a good question. What's the difference between a royalty and a streaming deal? A royalty, and, and, and it's interesting because I know I have some royalty friends in the audience here, but I'm going to give you my bias. A royalty should never be more than 25 3% of the revenues because beyond that, you actually become an economic force on the mine. So if the mine gets in trouble, they come to you saying, you know, you're an economic uh, deleterious effect. You need to re, re, rejig your royalty. Uh, so royalties are a small piece of revenue, whereas a stream, you're getting a percentage of the production. So... You know, you could get 20, 50. If you take the byproduct credits, like, you know, wheat and precious metals been so successfully, they get 100% of the byproduct. It's a much bigger number. So two things. When you buy a royalty, you're not going to pay as much. You know, typically pay a couple million dollars, maybe $10, $20 million for a big royalty, whereas even a small stream will be started about $20 million and can very rapidly go up to a billion dollars. So you own a mine that you want to build. you got a byproduct credit that you don't really need because your market is basing you on being gold, not on the copper or zinc you're producing. You can sell that and get several hundred million to build your mine. You've done a marvelous job for your investors because you've maintained your priority metal. You figured out a way to, to provide funding without putting excessive debt or diluting your shareholders. It's a marvelous model. It's bigger numbers is the bottom line. And now with everybody having trouble raising money to build mines, it's become the favored model because 2% royalty, even on a big mine, you're not going to get enough to build it. The, the math doesn't work. Are there tax advantages as well to a Yes, but I'm, I'm not going to get into that. Okay. That's why they have tax <laughs> Fair enough. You know, the guys you hang out with. Yeah. Um, given your love of valuation, 5% discount rate seems to have become the standard for uh, studies. Do you have any comments or thoughts that you can share with us on that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so... Um, there's, there's a concept that economists know about called the weighted cost of capital. And uh, it's amazing when you raise money in Canada, 
and the cost of your capital is 6 or 8 or 10 percent, and you're using a 5 percent discount rate on your cash flows, uh, the math doesn't work. So why do you do it? Because the market multiple makes up for the delta. Um, if, you buy a, if you buy a corporate bond, you might get 4 or 5 percent, but the idea that very high-risk mining is getting this incredibly low discount, it, 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 economically it makes no sense, but because you're using market multiples to make up, it makes a lot of sense. And I've seen certain major mining companies or royalty companies who go unnamed use a 0% discount rate. And their, mar and their investors love it, and it makes absolutely no economic sense. Other questions? Yep. Yeah, Doug, what, just uh, any company names Here. that you like that are solid? Any companies that you like name-wise, individual companies that uh, just aren't getting the love that you think deserve it? that you could mention here? Well, all my brethren in the royalty industry, yeah, of course. I, I, don't, I don't pick stocks. Sorry. Other questions? Yeah. Not a lot of interest in Australia for streaming and royalties um, versus the Canadian markets. Any thoughts on that? Yes. Um, the question is about Australian royalties and streaming. Um, Australians have always been very reluctant, first of all, and for very good reason, because when you create a stream or royalty, you're automatically getting whacked with a 30% tax. It's considered an asset sale. So it's much more, from a financial standpoint, you're raising money from me by creating royalty. And, uh, and then I've heard some cases where then you pay income tax as well. Um, it's a little tougher in Australia, but I think most of it is, is just stubbornness from Australians. Traditionally, you haven't used it as a vehicle, so why introduce it? We, I've owned a lot of Australian royalties. They're out there. Um, and I would, my guess is that as money is tight, it'll grow just out of necessity. Any other questions? So I think the last one for me is uh, I noticed your socks are flying pigs on them. Is there, uh, does that have any symbolism? Yes. Well, you know, whenever you go to a conference, you need to pick your socks. You're obviously saying this industry is very spotty. <laughs> and mine is that... Uh, a lot of the companies here will get financing when pigs fly. All right. I don't think we're going to find a better place to end it than that. So thank you very much for the time. Uh, for those in the audience, if you did like this, we have a website, resource-insider.com. We've talked to a lot of great people in the mining industry, so please check it out if you'd like to hear more. That's all. Thank you. Thank you both. We're going to take a 10-minute break and come right back for another great panel. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. If you're interested in getting access to the biggest deals and best opportunities in the mining and metals industry, go to capitalistexploits.at and sign up for Resource Insider now.